out <laughs> it looks nice that looks good over here um welcome back everyone we're thoughts and prayers hayes yeah. here i'm what here bodies um and we have andrew here another a new guest do you want to say hi andrew and, and tell us a little bit about yourself yeah hi my name is andrew um andrew james um i make documentaries um I'm on Twitter, which is how I found out about your podcast, how I met, met you guys, I guess. Um, uh, let's see. I live in Montana. Uh, I made a film called Street Fighting Men. I made, I'm making a film now called Generation COVID, which is about um, the school closures and the lockdowns and everything that happened with COVID and sort of the impacts of those policies on kids and a whole generation of families so that's sort of what i'm working on now and with jennifer say who's sort of like sort of famous for quitting levi she was speaking up um about it speaking out about the lockdowns and got let go they asked her to basically shut up and she said no and and now she and i are making a documentary together um yeah that's sort of my quick little introduction i guess What's your at so they can find your work? Um, at Andrew James Film. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, before we get into some of the film stuff, uh, do you do you live in the part of Mon? Is it like very mountainous where you are? Yeah, it is. It's so it's like western Western Montana, uh, Missoula area. Oh, okay. Um, it's like a college town. It's like kind of liberal, but it's not as bad as some places in that way and um lots to do there's some good culture there which is sort of like the good side of having that sort of progressive influence it's sort of a good mix of everything you've got your like western sort of like country people and you've got your city people and but it's a small town it's like a hundred thousand people maybe is that where you spent covid we moved here in the middle of covid Okay. So we were in solid. Were you like a COVID refugee type situation? Yeah, kind of. It it was not that it was that much better here. We were just really antsy to buy our first house and we had been saving up. And when COVID happened, like my conspiracy brain started just sort of going wild. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like, we need to buy our house now. Like, otherwise it's gonna, I just had a bad feeling about it. You know, interesting. Well, you so called we, it. So. <laughs> yeah, we so we 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 she my wife um, was applying for I can work anywhere. Um, so my wife was applying for jobs in different places. And um, Montana was near the top of the list because they are very um, freedom oriented. And the policies there were sort of to our liking with vaccines and stuff like you can't get fired for not getting any vaccine in Montana, not even the COVID vaccine. It's like a law on the books. And like at her job, they were definitely going to force the vaccine. So we were like, fuck that. And um, interesting. So that's one of the big reasons we moved to Montana. And we were like very left wing. And um, but then COVID happened. 
and it's sort of like you i don't know it it like we had started shifting before that a little bit um but then like when COVID happened it was sort of like this is crazy and it seemed like everyone lost their minds and everything got blown up ideologically and we moved to Montana. <laughs> Did you guys, um, and it's fine if you don't want to, I don't know, whatever. We have different levels of people talking about their personal life, but did you guys have kids in school? No. So we don't have kids, um, okay. yet. um, but we're thinking about it, talking about it. Um, but no kids yet. And it was mostly just about us and our life and our freedom and what we wanted. Cool. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, that's like a lot. So, I mean, we definitely have a lot of thoughts as well as questions for you about your about generation COVID. Um, I mean, like that was basically what, you know, prompted us to start this podcast was the whole COVID craziness, you know. And uh, I mean, similar to you, like we were we were lefties, you know, before all that. And uh, so I, I don't know, a lot a common thing that we kind of are interested to talk about with our guests is like what what that journey was like or like where so you said you were on like leftist some to some degree prior to covid like but you also mentioned that like when covid happened your conspiracy brain went off so like <laughs> what was it that that got you from a to b yeah so i think i started just sort of getting into conspiracies as like a hobby at first, like I found like it before fun. COVID. Yeah. Before COVID, like when I was still like a Bernie Sanders supporter, you know, like back in the day. Um, oh, so you, you took that route. You were Bernie, Bernie yeah. bro. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, yeah. It was like Bernie bro to Jill Stein. Like I didn't vote. I, I never voted for Trump. And then like in the last election, I don't think I even voted. Um, yeah. And then now it's like, I think maybe I would vote for Trump. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm not sure. Like, uh, I'm not, I, I just become very disillusioned. I got really black billed and then I had to sort of like fight my way back from that. Yeah. Um, we can relate yeah. to that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds very familiar. But yeah, I kind of just got into conspiracies. Found so so what, like Epstein or like, like 9-11 or like what yeah, are 9-11 here? Dude, yeah. So I was still like very much like, you know, like a socialist or whatever when I started mm -hmm. thinking 9-11 was an inside job. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember my friends like thinking that was crazy, but it was like back then you could sort of have those conversations and no one really cared. At least that's mm -hmm. how it was with my friend group. Um, and now it's like, how dare you? You know, <laughs> how mm -hmm. dare you? Although I think like a lot of people probably think that more than um, people realize. Um, but that was probably the first one. And then from there was like other various things. Epstein was was big. And so then I was an editor on a HBO show Q Into the Storm. Oh, uh, yeah. So I, I edited like a bunch of episodes for that. Um, and so I got real deep into QAnon as well. But, you know, never I was never like a believer, but I know a lot about it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. It's interesting do you think, I mean, one thing I think is that one thing I've noticed on left, lefty and right friends and unaligned friends, we essentially consider ourselves, I think, mostly unaligned. But one thing I've noticed is like, whatever happened between COVID and like Floyd summer and all that stuff, it feels like people have just had 
no matter what side they're on, a total erosion and like faith in the government. Um, and I, I've felt heartened that my close group of friends is like that. Obviously I'm on Twitter and I see there's still people in ventilator masks and stuff. So I know there's people who are not at all there, but I don't know. I, I guess I'm just, that's something I feel It's like, at least in the people closest to me, I'm like, they at least have like a deep erosion of like trust in the government, no matter where they're kind of coming from. So that has been heartening in a way (laughs) i would agree yeah i would agree it's been interesting to see how things have changed ideologically um where like your sort of normies are like questioning things now and like you know my brother is you know kind of like your normie liberal but i think he's starting to have questions about stuff um, yeah, and I don't think like I think Epstein was something that was interesting because like I don't really know anyone personally who doesn't think Epstein was killed, for instance. Like, even if they like don't haven't like read a ton about it, like they're like yeah. that was they're like that was weird. Like <laughs> almost everyone I know is like, there's no valid explanation for like what happened with Epstein, you know. So I'm at least like I don't know maybe some walls are breaking down, but then then I'll come across a Twitter account that's like someone that's like, I can't believe people went to Beyonce and didn't mask. And it's like, I'm like oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean like, yeah, like, I don't know. It's a weird situation. Like a lot of my friends, you know, and I live in a super liberal area, but like a lot of my friends can basically admit that like Biden, for example, is like demented or like a CGI or whatever. But, but, uh, <laughs> But I feel like ultimately they're still like, yeah, exactly. Basically, they're still like plugged into the matrix, though, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's like, I mean, I'm excited to talk to to you because when COVID hit, I was working at a school and oh, wow. I was in um, a city. People know I live in New York, but New York was the first school district to mandate the vaccine and things like that. So. I am vaxxed. The listeners know that. Um, <laughs> I don't have the, I don't have the excuse that I did it for my job because I was one of the people, um, and I think this might be true for A two, who was totally willing to get it, thinking and thinking that this would be the freedom moment. And I was like, fine, whatever. I've yeah, snorted. I just wanted my life back. Yeah, I wanted my life back. And I'm like, I've snorted substances that a total stranger put up to my nose on a key. Like, I was like, you know, like, whatever. I'll <laughs> I'll take this shot. Sure. Like, yeah. and, um, and then when, like, they were like, no, you still, ha- you still have to wear the mask. You still have to do all this stuff. Uh, then I was like, oh, like, what the fuck? Like, I did, I did the thing, guys. Like, I took your mystery meat injection and, you know. Well, it's like classic abuse tactics, too. (laughs) It's like you're dealing, when you're dealing, it's sort of like this narcissistic abuse tactics that the government was sort of systematically perpetrating on all of us, you know, and especially on kids, but, um, but, but everybody. It was, you know, like sort of just constant gaslighting, uh, promising things and then not delivering and then promising new stuff. And, um, you know, there's like this whole outline you can probably find online and go through the whole like strategy that people like this use. And it was um, that that was really interesting to me because it felt like it was for sure orchestrated like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
to be well, psychologically manipulative, you know? Of course, of course. So let, let's transition to the the kid stuff in your documentary because I, um, you know, I, I the school, I don't work at the school I was working at anymore, but I was at it, obviously the school um, completely closed down. No one was allowed in the school for, from um, whatever it was, March, 2020 to that summer. So there was no school. Um, there was online school, which was effectively nothing was happening. Um, yep. And then the next year, they gave teachers uh, and anyone, anyone working in a school could get a, in New York City, could get a special um, medical form that would let them not have to be in school. Um, but they were passing out these medical forms, like you could get it for anything, you could get it for hmm. depression. Hmm. get it for anxiety <laughs> you know like it was very easy to walk into a doctor's office and get it um so me and many of my colleagues did i did get it this was way 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 pre that was that was what fall 2020 i was fall 2020 this yeah. was way before i started to really think like this is all an op like i i hadn't even actually that's not true that when they told us to go do the blm protests in the summer um that's when you first started thinking maybe this is that like, was when i that was the first like inkling of i was like wait a minute <laughs> i thought there was like a deadly disease and yeah. now all my all my friends who like wouldn't hang out with me wouldn't see me would only meet me in a park masked were sitting on picnic blankets six feet apart like now you guys are telling me that i'm a racist if i don't go to these protests like i thought i was supposed to be terrified of this disease you know so like and then, like, a bunch of my friends were out and, like, doing all the, you know, bullshit. They were breaking all the windows and stuff. And right. that was when I started to realize, like, oh, they're just um, letting off steam. Whatever. In the fall, I still believed I still believed COVID could really, really hurt you. <laughs> so I stayed home, and so did a lot of my colleagues. And we did the, like, half Zoom, half whatever. The, at most kids were in school two days a week, but the 80, 80% of the families opted for remote for obvious reasons because it's very difficult to say okay on Tuesday and and Thursday my kids allowed to go into school but they can't you know what I mean it was just easier and I was teaching old enough kids that basically the parents just left them at home um, because the parents all still had to go uh, work I was in a working class school at the time so they all had to go out and do their regular jobs so the kids were just alone at school all day and like um so you were doing you know, online zoom classes they were doing online zoom classes at home alone yeah. no supervision often taking care of younger siblings at the same time so you can imagine how like you know a yeah. shit show it was and then was the it, thing that the thing that just, really sorry. sorry i was just was it like a literal just like like 30 camera off like well, I was annoying because I had I had all the parents' phone numbers on my phone. So if the camera was off, I would spend maybe like thirty minutes of class calling, and the parent would if the parent wow. was home, they would burst in the room, screaming <laughs> <laughs> at their kid, <laughs> and then the camera would come on. But I was still spending like thirty minutes of instructional time trying to force the camera on because yeah. I at least felt like if I don't see their face, I don't know if they're okay. Totally. Um, and then we did lose kids. Like we literally had kids where we didn't know where they were. Like we didn't totally. know, we didn't know where, what happened to them. They yeah. didn't disenroll. 
There was no paper trail. As far as I know, that hasn't been 100% resolved. Like, you know, I'm sure, uh, I'm hoping, but a majority of these kids just moved. But there certainly are missing kids in the system. So when I saw your sizzle reel and I, I, I heard about the documentary you were making, I was very interested because I don't feel like that's ever been um, resolved. Like, I don't, have we figured out where all the kids are? <laughs> Do we know for sure that they're okay? Um, I'm sure some really shady shit happened in the, in this process. It's awful to think about. So anyway, that's a little bit of my context, but I'd love to hear like what brought you to this work. I'm sure hearing about some of the things I just described was part of it, but yeah, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Bit about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, that's the film goes into all of that actually. Um, so in fact, like the, at the opening sequence of the film, which I've been was working on today, um, <clears throat> is like this group in Colorado that goes around trying to find these missing kids. So there's like all these kids that are like, who like no one knows where they are. They've just stopped going to school and haven't come back. Some of them, some of them have moved. Some of them have run away. Some of them, who knows? You know, it's like who knows exactly. Um, and, and we had kids too, because it was a heavily immigrant community. Like some of them went to the Dominican Republic yeah. or some of them went, but then it's like, yeah. there was no, tr- usually in a regular sc- school year, that would be tracked, right? There'd be some, you'd have to yeah. send your papers from where you went, but none of that was happening. Well, also know? I think kids just got the message that school wasn't important. Definitely. So yeah. it was easy to ditch. It was easy to go do whatever, to get in trouble, to get involved with the wrong crowd or whatever which is a big thing that happened the film goes into all that um so yeah kids kind of just got thrown to the wayside during covid and i think they i think they felt that i think they felt a little bit sort of like ditched you know and um so the film kind of goes into all that and sort of what sort of the ramifications of what happened when you just sort of pull the rug out from people from under people like that you know closing school is just People have lives they're living. So it's like maybe mom, 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 single mom, she's working, you know, COVID happens, but she's like, she's an essential worker. So she's still got to go to school, but now, but the kid has to stay home, you know? So now she's got to figure that out. There's so, there's so many circumstances like that, that, and so many people that suffered um, and so many kids that got harmed. Um, So the film is really like a, it's like trying to sort of unravel all of that. Um, and sort of talk about like what this has done to society, but through the eyes of these kids who we met and followed, you know, we met these kids like in San Francisco and New York and um, Denver, Portland, different places, you know? Um, So it's really sort of like a look at America too. Like it's, it's going to be an interesting film because it's sort of, yes, it's about these, these schools and these lockdowns, what happened to kids and you get to hear from them and you kind of get to meet their families, but you're also talking to all these experts um, and hearing about it from like a, you know, kind of like a top down level. And, you know, you've got like Dr. J in there and like different lawyers and different, really interesting people um, helping tell the story. Um, So it's going to, it's like a dream project because I wanted to make something about COVID but I wasn't really sure what the angle should be. Um, and then I met Jen on Twitter and she had this idea to make it about kids and schools. Cause she's, it's like, she's like a big advocate for that. And she was speaking out about that, which is how she like got, you know, lost her job at Levi's basically. Um, and so she had this big idea to make this film about kids and schools. And I was like, okay, let's do it. 
And that, and so I started to learn more and more about it as we were making the film. At first, I was sort of just thinking about lockdowns and the man, like some of the other mandates and stuff. And the film will definitely go into all that, but it's but it's through the lens of what happened to kids and the ramifications of closing schools. So it's not even a film that's sort of championing schools per se. It's sort of just telling the story of what happened and talking about the harms that were caused. You know, I mean, it's it's good. It's it's great that you're doing it because one thing that I think is still astounding to me, as someone who has come to believe that I was a, you know, a small part of what happened. I mean, like I did stay home. I did feel, you know, like, you know, I did really swallow the propaganda for a long time, but no one, there's still an argument, which I find insane about whether there was even learning loss amongst these kids. Like there are still plenty of pundits out there that are like, there was no learning loss. And it's like, I can't believe that we can't agree on a fundamental fact like that, that like, they can't fucking read. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, totally, and they can't socialize. They like, they mm-hmm. don't, they've lot like, like not just, you know, because they were home or whatever, and then they get stuck on their phone. And so now they're addicted to their phones, but then like the mask was like a big deal too. And mm-hmm. um, especially for young kids at a certain age, you know, needing to like see faces, you know, when you're, when you're learning to read or when you're like in school or whatever, it's like a big deal. Um, so there, yeah, was like- and there was, I mean, and they stopped. I mean, like I was a, at the time I was a foster parent and I did foster some kids during COVID and like, wow. there was a whole, um, maybe four or five months where like the foster care, like ACS closed. Wow. So they, so they weren't even like answering. So who the, you know, and it's like, who the fuck yeah. knows what was happening to kids during this oh, yeah. time? There's all kinds of abuse. There's, you know, yeah. Like- their kids getting because I mean maybe you've gotten abusive parents so when you're at school like you're a little bit more safe than like at home like you're getting abused all the time now because school is closed. Um, that was the thing that actually happened a lot, which you maybe wouldn't have thought of. Um, there's so many situations. Yeah, everything I read, like abuse statistics, went like when they finally did start checking in again, it's like abuse statistics were like way up. Yeah. You know? I think people are also just like you know trapped in the house with each other, probably getting mad at each other. Mm, you know, you know, yeah. getting tired of each other. There was also, um, sadly, lots of uh, mental health issues and um, suicides. Oh, for sure, God. definitely. Yeah. Which the film? I know two. I know. I mean, I don't. No one I was super close with, but like two people in my like broader, um, kind of social circle. One overdosed on fentanyl, and one one killed himself. So I even wow. me like these aren't people I'm like super close with, but people that are like in my kind of broader social circle, like in the midst of lockdown, like those 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 things happened. And I just feel like there's I I hope your film because <laughs> it seems like there's not going to be any reckoning. Like A and I were talking about right. this the other day. Right. Like it seems like you're cringe if you still talk about COVID on Twitter. Right. I know, A, you felt that way, too. And it's yeah. like... And that's something that we've gotten even about, like, feedback on our podcast. Like, well, why are you oh, guys really? <laughs> always talking about COVID? It's like, well, dude, because it was fucking changed our everyone on Earth's life. Right. But, like... For, um, but, yeah, and I mean, it's... it's uh, that's why I think it's, like, such a great title, even Generation COVID, is, like, it... 
it really like this gener this whole generation of children will be shaped by this event and like oh, it, no it's doubt. hard to even say um like which age group would be like worst impacted by it but like even think about like high school right like okay so you were just at home basically for a full year at least some of them had like almost two years or two years yeah right, right. yeah and um and so that's you're not seeing your friend any of your friends like think about high school like what what was it's that crazy. to you like you didn't give a fuck about like history or whatever like you were right. wanting to hang out with your friends and shit like and then so you there's one or two years of that just like total isolation yeah. then you come back for this weird ass like semblance of school but it's like your social distancing all the desks are like spaced ridiculously out and you're all wearing masks and everything and the masks are so weird like to me the masks were like the you know in a way like the only way they were able to pull off this like charade of the pandemic was because every making everyone wear the masks gave just such an eerie vibe to like anywhere that you were at it's like this constant visual reminder, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. and, like, and it's like training, you know, it's like and I feel like, you know, and, you know, the film won't go into any real like conspiracy territory. We're going to keep everything above board because we're trying to like, you know, convince people this was a big mistake, mm -hmm. you know, um, <clears throat> but a lot of things that did happen, people think are conspiracies. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I'm sure some people will still accuse the film of being conspiratorial. Um, some people thought the trailer or the sizzle reel was conspiratorial. Um, <laughs> yeah, you will. You'll definitely get that accusation. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. Um, you're 100 percent going to get that accusation. And I can I can promise you that plenty of people in education have not backed down in, in any way. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I mean, the documentary world, man, I can tell you it is like it's just balls to the wall. We will obey. We will obey the narrative, like whatever the new thing is. We're all about it. And, and as soon as you like question it, it's crazy. It's like all the money is contingent upon like how in line your project is or will be with the narrative and what they want to put out there into the world, you know, and they went totally along with COVID. I think Sundance required like the vaccine to attend. Oh, well, they definitely uh, did. I mean, yeah, I, have, yeah, like, I, have, I have friends who are working in the TV, whatever industry, and, and they're still, uh, I had a friend filming last week and they'll, they're still swabbing people's noses before well, they, they go the whole set. industry around it. Yeah. Like on set, yeah. you know, all this kind of, they've got like, you look in the credits now, you've got this whole big section of like COVID people, <laughs> COVID <laughs> protocol <laughs> manager yeah, or like, whatever. Yeah. It's kind of hard to get rid of it at that point. You've built this whole like infrastructure. That's the thing that cool. that's hard. That's hard. You know, it's like, dude, this is permanent. Like, do you not, you can't just, I mean, at least somewhat permanent. I mean, like, you know, best case, it's somewhat permanent. Like they've put in all of this infrastructure and you've got all these big wigs who have invested all this money into all this advertising, all this messaging, you know, like just, just like, just based on just pure observation alone, one could deduce like, this is not this sort of COVID mentality that, is not going anywhere anytime soon, you know. Well, it's it's not, and like on the streets of New York, the they're not as many as there were, but there are mobile testing sites again. Oh, that's terrible! Oh my god, it's, it, it's <laughs> awful. When I walk past one, I'm like, what? And then the thing that I wanted to bring up to you because I was curious if you had heard about it, but during the like 
wildfires last year, which I mean, I, I have my whole schizo theories about what was going on there, but New York had this like massive like smoke bomb thing and they closed the schools. Oh and, yeah. That was like a so way to close schools. Right. Wow. And so yeah. I was, so that really made me see like, oh, this infrastructure they've put in place of like, we have to have online classrooms. We yep. have to have yep. these things. So they've put this infrastructure in place and now they can do like climate lockdown. Oh, totally. Like now they, totally. Like now they can do yep. like, it's too hot out. It's too, you know what I mean? Like they can, so there's this whole apparatus in place that they can use this for all sorts of things now, you know? No, totally. I feel like, I feel like COVID was like the training wheels for this new way of like being. You know, mm-hmm. so I think I think that's where it's going. I think it's yeah. going to be climate yeah. lockdowns. I think I that's our new, yeah. And I think that you know they they want. I think all of us eventually. You know, this is like not the film territory, but this is just you know whatever my schizo theory theories. I feel like they they eventually all just want us doing everything online. You know, they all mm-hmm. want us in the pod or whatever. So it's like all of it to me is like incremental movements in that direction that. And it all, I'm, I'm against all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it, it, it's like I saw the day, like I have kids and I live in a, an area with, you know, a lot of kids. And um, I yeah, saw how just, your kids and were they mine are young. So thankfully, like my first uh, was born in 2020. So, oh, wow. yeah. So um, so that was kind of crazy just in itself, because like when you know, we decided to have kids. It was like just before the pandemic. And so then like everything changed, but, but thankfully it was like, um, by the time, because here it was like mask mandates started when the kid was two years old, like you didn't have to wear a mask before that. So thankfully they ended here before my kid turned two, but that's good. I was, yeah. I mean, I, so we weren't impacted that, I mean, we, we got out of it like pretty, pretty good. Um, all things That's considered. Good. Yeah. But like you I, guys did get pregnant without realizing the pandemic was about to happen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was, crazy. <laughs> it, it was. and, but like, I saw the impact on so many other kids and, and like, you could tell, like these kids were just like, I don't like damaged. Like they, they were like, it's hard to even describe, but you could just see it. I mean, you could, it was like a palpable energy and I see them like walking home from school, even after like they went back to school, like walking home from school with the mask on, like not talking to the other kids. Like it was just so depressing. And like, thankfully they, they do seem to have like recovered somewhat. Like I had, and I, I was so happy and grateful to see that, but it was still just like, I'm sure it, it left a mark. And and even beyond just the damage to those individuals, like I think kind of what you're what what we're saying is like everyone um, now has just been conditioned to this way of thinking. And two, like if the government ever like tells you need, you need to put back on the mask again, right. there's already this precedent for it. And all these kids will have been kind of initiated into that. Like, no, totally. They, they live through it. Yeah. Yeah. Normalized. Yeah. I mean, I have, um, I have three brothers who are still in high school. My, my dad did like a round, round two family. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, my dad was telling me like, you know, one of my brothers is autistic and he was telling me that like long after the mask 
mandate was um, lifted, they couldn't get him to take it off at school. And my dad was like, he's using it as like a way to like further recede when it's like, that's bad. Like he, he should be trying to be forced to, you know, like he's not severely autistic, like he's functional. And it's like, my dad, they were very worried about it. And I, and I think a lot of kids kept doing that. Like kids who were already sort of prone to so, being socially isolated used it as a way to um, kind of further hide. And it's like, no, that's bad. Like they need to try to take some steps into the social world, you know? No, totally. I saw that as well. I, I, um, I was teaching a, um, like an after school class for high school kids, like a documentary class um, during, during COVID. Um, and the, the kids would come in with the masks on and it'd be, you know, the first year it was all mandatory, like in the building. Then like the second year, I think it was optional. And it was interesting to see who was wearing the mask and who wasn't. And it was mostly women who were still clinging to the mask longer. And because it seemed like maybe a way to like deal with some insecurities or something, you know, and I thought yeah. that was really sad. Um, and I saw that a lot with the kids. It was sort of like, and there was one kid in particular who, um, he was really sweet, but was just super insecure and just like, couldn't take that mask off, you know? So it sort of became like this thing, like you were saying that some kids were clinging to because they were dealing with something else or felt insecure for whatever reason. Yeah. It became like the hoodie or whatever, like the hoodie that that covers your part of your face like became the way a way of like taking yourself out of the kind of social hierarchy which is which is tough I mean I remember being a teenager it's tough but like part of growing up is like you know you have to kind of get in there no totally no dude it's it's crazy what kids are having to deal with these days like I mean, I'm really glad I grew up in the 90s. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I grew up before the internet, really, you know? Um, like, we had the internet, but it wasn't like it is now. It didn't have any mm-hmm. kind of social impact. How old are you? I'm just curious. I am I just turned 45. Okay, okay. So you're more 90s than we are, even. Yeah, I'm I was like, alive. The whole, I was alive the whole 90s, but nice. I, was young. Nice. I was younger. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm like, I'm like late Gen X. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my, my wife is like very late Gen X, like maybe borderline early millennial. She's born. My partner, my partner's uh, forty five, and he considers sometimes he uses the term exennial, and I'm like, that's funny. I think that's, uh, I think that's a bit of a, a bit of a cope. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, um, I mean, I, I, pers- I, I'm a millennial firmly, but I identify like spiritually as Gen X, so I, I'm a big fan of that generation <laughs> I, think, I unfortunately I mean, feel like i got all the worst qualities <laughs> i feel like the the proto like overly anxious millennial millennials are yeah i don't know man <laughs> i feel like the overly a lot of us anxious, are not gonna make it yeah dude, like the, dude, they're all like socially like i feel like the thing i've run into with millennials a lot like a lot of my millennial friends that i've had over the years like they don't ever feel like a there's no sort of like social pressure to like, like with communication, you know what I mean? There's sort of like a lot, like very lax, like very like different (laughs) attitude about communication. I feel like with Gen X, it was like, you know, "Hmm, 
like very sort of like we've communicated now this is going to happen it's like just sort of a different attitude mm -hmm. as well as i think because I've of noticed. the cell phones now it's because before yeah. that, right, if you were like, OK, we're going to go meet up at nine o'clock at this bar or whatever, you know, like you made that plan and you can't really like go, you know, you're going to be out and about. There's no way to get in touch. So you just have to basically stick to it. You know, now it's like, oh, five True. minutes before, like, True. oh, like my tummy hurts or whatever. You know, I'm going to stay <laughs> my in. Tummy hurts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like actually all of us are at this other place 40 yeah. minutes away. Right. Yeah, it's like, there's just this ability to get out of shit. I mean, but I'm I'm I work near a college, and it's not looking pretty for the Zoomers either. In fact, it's <laughs> it's really terrifying. Yeah. What um, are you? What's your what? What's your take on the Zoomers? I mean, first off, they all look like they them's now. <laughs> like, there's no, and like I you know I grew up a gay kid, and it was like you know, I kind of liked once I got past, once I got over the hump of admitting I was gay, I was like, oh, it's fun to sort of be in like the subgroup of sort of like weirdly dressed people, which wasn't all gay people, you know what sure. I mean? But like, yeah, yeah. that's where the gay, that's where the gay people ended up. And then, you know, like the other people were like, the, you know, the more normie. And, you know, I felt like that was like, something was healthy about that <laughs> to me. Mm -hmm. But now it's like, everyone is super weird. Like, I'm like, where are the, where are the hot people? Like, where, like, where, like, the, where are like the people who are going to like the, the, like, you know, like, where are the jocks? Like, I'm like, right. Shouldn't they still exist somewhere? I, I, no, it's, <laughs> yeah, totally. No, it's weird. I've noticed the same thing too. And one thing I noticed while making the film going around all the classrooms like it's like they them pronoun stuff like in every classroom yes. like That's everywhere good. all over the country and it's sort of like mm, is that like <laughs> the thing that like like i don't know like should teenagers be thinking about this like that much like it has to be like on the wall like in the classroom like no it shouldn't and it makes me <laughs> it makes me sad because i'm like you know it's like kind of just i mean i think it's i don't know i mean i don't go out anymore i'm <sighs> basic i'm a homebody i the friends i see i see in like their houses but i would imagine it's kind of like fucked like even queer culture because it's like if you were gay and you were a guy you used to like go be a slut and if you were like a gay girl you used to go and like you know <laughs> u-haul lesbian it you know what i mean like there were all these like little subcultures but now it's like if everyone's a they I, I don't know. How do they figure out who to sleep with? It's very confusing. <laughs> Dude, it's like dehumanizing, I feel like. Mm -hmm. It's like they're it willingly dehumanizing themselves, you know? And they seem like de-sexed because yeah, like, I, mean, I remember, yeah, when I was in college, I remember you could, you know, just walking around, it's like, you could tell people were fucking. I mean, you could tell that there was like that energy in the air and I just like don't feel that from any of them. I'm like, it's like, you know, yeah. So, sad. yeah, I, it's, <laughs> it's really sad. It's like, do you do, do, I don't know, do kids go out and party anymore? Like the way that they used to, you know, I have no idea. And I, I wonder how much COVID affected because again, my, my parents both did round two marriages. So my, I had a sister who was in college at the end of COVID and um, luckily she it was her very last semester. So it was March, 2020 was her last semester. 
So thankfully, she got through the vast majority of college normally. But what happened was, which was hilarious to me, is they closed the campuses. And then, of course, all the kids did exactly what I would have done at that age. And they all just moved in. They all just rented incredibly cheap houses nearby and all moved in together <laughs> because none of them wanted to go home, which is, exa- again, exactly what I would have done at their age. They all got COVID, of course, like month one, like every single one of them. They were fine. They were yeah. young, hearty, healthy k- kids. Yeah. Um, but I thought about that because I'm like, luckily for her, even though she missed like some stuff, like they didn't have a graduation or whatever, like, you know, she had her college experience. She had like almost all four years normal. But I thought about the kids who were only like sophomores or whatever and how right. fucked that must have been for them. You know, no, totally. Like some kids miss like their, you know, super important years. Like yeah. That, like, you know, like, let's say you're, you know, you want to try to use football as a way to like, you know, get ahead in life or get a get that degree or whatever. And now it's your junior year. You're hoping you're going to get scouted and now it's COVID and everything's closed down and no one's coming to scout. And so you got anyway, school's closed. So you got that. You know what I mean? So now you're behind like in all these different ways. So school might open again a few years later and people might be like, oh, what's the big deal? But like you missed out on that now. And now you're super behind and your life's on a totally new trajectory. And that that's just yeah. one example. That's like one tiny example. Out of millions. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, I felt even as someone who was in my like early 30s when this all started, like you know, I felt even like my own shit was kind of fucked. Like I definitely had some mental health issues. I definitely had some like depression and shit, but I was like, at least, you know, I'm past all these like formative years, you know what I mean? And I I, I couldn't imagine how devastating it would have been if that had happened when I was like 21 and I was still like in the mix of like figuring out everything you know it would have just yeah it would have been bad dude and i'm sure it was was bad it was i mean i can i can relate like i can imagine at least what it might be like um i remember being so like engrossed and just like my little bubble and my little world like you're not thinking about five years down the line you're not thinking about 10 years down the line when you're young like that you know so your whole world gets like shut down Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people lost hope and gave up, you know, I think um, it was really bad for a lot of people on a, in a variety of ways on a, on a sliding scale, you know, and for some, I mean, for some reason, it was like, oh, kids are gonna have to suffer really bad. It's like, we're going to have football games and do all kinds of stuff, but we're still going to keep schools closed and we're still going to make kids mask at, and, you know, there's all kinds, you know, and ultimately it felt like a way for like, you know, Pfizer to use schools as a bargaining chip and force kids to get vaccinated, you know, because Dr. Fauci would get on the shows and say stuff like, oh, well, there's not enough people vaccinated yet. Then we'll open the school, you know? So there was a lot of stuff going on. It was like trying to get everybody vaccinated. And I feel like they're like, you were like, we were talking earlier and doing this sort of social conditioning, getting everyone used to doing everything online you know, um, getting and, people used to this sort of weird government control that I'm super uncomfortable with. I don't understand how anyone could be comfortable with, actually. But um, then you start having these debates with people. You're like, it's just so obvious. Like, the government shouldn't be telling us, like, 
to have a curfew or that we need to be injecting in mysterious substances in our bodies or that we should be like covering our mouth and like obstructing our breathing or that we should be only like in Michigan, you can't buy seeds now or whatever it was like these some of the rules got so crazy and it just can't felt, go to church. Yeah. Like you couldn't have, like you couldn't, you couldn't have more than five, people, five people in your house. <laughs> right. The Pope was telling people to stay home from church. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so. I was, I was, I was repulsed. I went to, I'm Catholic and I went to mass a new church with a friend a couple weeks ago and, uh, just to go with her. And um, when the, when the priest came down to give communion, he put a mask on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I was just like, like Jesus touched the lepers. And like, don't, I mean, like, don't, you're a man of God. You know what I mean? Like, don't you, shouldn't you just have faith in that? Like, and you know what I mean? Like if God, COVID is not, you right. know, I don't I don't get it. And if God takes you because of COVID, yeah. that's what you were that, that yeah. was your time, you know. Well, dude, this gets at what I feel like is maybe the core difference between like people who were like okay with all the COVID rules and people who weren't. It's sort of like people who really value freedom versus people who really value safety. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of people who have been sort of indoctrinated into valuing safety. When, mm-hmm. because you're, everyone's in charge of their own safety. No one else is in charge of your safety for you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so to think that the government's going to like somehow keep you safe is so stupid. Um, mm-hmm. When has the government ever kept you safe from anything? Like, no. it, it's like, I feel like no one ever like thinks through like these, these concepts, but and it's just basic stuff. But that's sort of, that was a big thing for me. It was just like, okay, like how could I ever be a socialist? But the government, like, can't do anything properly and we're going to outsource everything to them. Now we're going to give them like, like, you know, we're going to give them production. We're going to give them food. We're going to give them all kinds of like here, take care of everything. Like they can't do anything right. You know, like look at how they handle it. It ruined whatever last vestiges of socialism or communism I had. I was like, I don't want them to have anything. (laughs) And it's like in a vacuum, like maybe the idea makes sense. It's like if you have like really moral people in charge, et cetera, et cetera. But like, we know it's just not the world we live in, you know? So it's sort of like dealing in reality. And that was sort of like my journey away from socialism was just sort of mm-hmm. coming to grips with the realities of bureaucracy and the nature of like of human beings and like how people are with when they get into positions of power and stuff like that. Exactly. Power corrupts. Mm -hmm. And so if you give these lots of institutions like massive amounts of power, they will not. I mean, any good they do is purely incidental to (laughs) whatever their, you know, actual interests are. And um, in most cases, they're not good. And yeah, I mean, it's just it's a classic thing, right? Trading freedom for safety. That's been the theme of all these government things, even 9-11, like without even going into a conspiracy thing, like you can just clearly see that's what happened, right? Like they were like, oh, you we need to protect you from the terrorists in exchange for that. You have to give up, you know, your privacy and we can now read all your emails and listen into all your phone calls and um, feel you up at the airport and, you know, right. No, that, that was a similar kind of thing. It was like, I think they even said that the the airport stuff was going to be temporary. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
another <laughs> theme of these things is that bait and switch where oh just yeah. you know just while we hunt down al-qaeda you know and then as soon as we find them it'll go back to normal and right. that was the same shit they said with covid you know 15 days to slow the spread or whatever and yeah um, now, I, I believed in it too at first like i think like the first week or so i was a little bit scared of covid i was like oh shoot like i should wear the mask to the grocery store i guess you know um but quickly that wore off and i was like speaking out on twitter because I, I didn't know what else to do i had like mm -hmm. a couple hundred followers or something um well this was something i was actually like sorry did i interrupt you no you you're good you're good this was something i you know appreciated oh god maybe i shouldn't bring it up because they always never mind <laughs> this was something i appreciated this is something i appreciated for uh, several podcasts that won't be named but i had some podcasts where people were starting to question early and it did begin to like crack like some things you know oh, wow. and that was, that was good for me like that was because i had nothing to fucking do <laughs> so i just started listening to you know various podcasts and there were a few early dissenters out there yeah. so that was that was good were you guys locked down for a while? Oh yeah, I was. Yeah, in New York, we. There, I didn't. I wasn't able to buy, like, even a cup of coffee. Like every business was closed. I would say until June. Yeah, From March March to June, you couldn't even. Besides a grocery store, you couldn't go into anything, and then. Once the vax happened, which was still six months later, they started the vax card policy. So you could go into places if you had the card, which was interesting because black New Yorkers weren't right. getting the vax. Right. So we started a de facto segregated <laughs> system where every restaurant was all white people. Right. There was, and I was like, "Oh, we're just doing no blacks again." <laughs> Two thousand and twenty-one. I saw like there was like some viral videos of that time. You probably, you probably saw them of like there was like this black family like went into some restaurant and there was like, a bunch of white people at a restaurant and they like kicking him out because didn't have his vax card or whatever. Um, but yeah, well, and they only, and they only ironically they only arrested black people too. It was like in the i mean i'm sure some white people got arrested but like i remember a lot of the videos of people getting arrested for like sitting in the park and stuff were, were yeah. black people at least at least in new york but i know they were going around and arresting people in um parks and beaches and stuff my my partner and i went to a park it must have been we were going so crazy it must have been like a month in so we drove out to a park uh just in the middle of nowhere new jersey there was no one in this whole park no one um, and we had our masks on. So we were wearing our masks outside. No one's near us. And a cop car drove, saw us, drove into oh the gosh. park, like across the grass and put their lights on and told us we had to leave. Oh my God. Even though we were, even though we were masked with literally no one in sight. Oh <laughs> so we had to leave the park. Dude, I had, I had a man assault me on the plane. <laughs> So this was like early COVID, like I was flying to Los Angeles for a job and I had my mask down below my nose. This is like maybe like second or third week into COVID. This is before <laughs> really anything was normalized. This is before any of the narratives were really like in place. It was like everything was just chaos. Like, so I, ha I was just, I was flying to Los Angeles for a job. 
for that QAnon show, actually, I was telling you about. And I had the mask below my nose. And some guy was like, hey, you know, put your mask. Up. I was like, he was like the first guy on the plane. And I was like, maybe the second guy on the plane going towards the back. And so he was sitting, you know, by himself. And I was coming towards him. And he was like, hey, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Put your mask on, blah, blah, blah. And I was already like all fired up about COVID. I was like, <laughs> fuck this shit. This is so stupid, you know? So I was like, make me or whatever. So then he got all, <laughs> so then he like lunged at me and like tried to choke me. <laughs> wow. And I had to like swat this guy off me on the plane. And there was nobody else on the plane. So nothing happened. There was like no like ramifications. It just sort of ended. Like I sort of, I kind of punched him. I kind of just pushed him off me. And that was the end of it. And he kind of just like left me alone after that. Um, and then I think someone Wait, mentioned. Were you guys alone on the plane? Like, yeah, there were still to... people boarding, but like. Oh, okay. okay. Of, like, I guess kind of like that or nothing. No one really, if people did notice, like no one didn't really, no one really said anything. Um, but yeah, people like lost their minds. Mm -hmm. People lost their minds. Like imagine watching TV that much that you're just going to attack somebody. Oh yeah. I had friends. I had friends, <laughs> like good friends who like we, you know, were uh, wanted to meet up, you know, during the lockdowns. But of course it was like, we met out outside and like, me and my wife were like, oh, you know, like it's it's middle of summer. It's so hot. Like we don't want to wear a mask like outside. And, you know, this friend was like just so like free, visibly like agitated when we were with her. And like, she, you know, like it was it, it just like so nuts. And 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 yeah, like we were we were locked down for a long time in Illinois. And like it, it did. They did. They changed the rules all the time and they were, oh, it's scientific. It's based on the metrics and whatever, you know, go, oh, if there's 300 cases, then you can gr gather in groups of up to five. And if right. there's 500 cases, oh, now you get uh, you have to only have two people or whatever. Dude, you know? how annoying were the, those people that like knew all those rules, too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and part of it was just like always changing. And so no one ever like knew what was happening. And really like you didn't even have to have the cops coming around and like, you know, telling people to stay inside because people in my area at least were like just they just internalized it all so much and they were yeah. scared and they, they just didn't go out, you know. No, totally. And, that's that's how it was in Utah, too. It's where we were in Salt Lake when it first started. Um People were just, yeah. I don't know. People are busy. They're busy with their lives. It's a hard to like, it's hard to always be reading between the lines all the time. I think people just sort of take things at face value and, you know, I think it was easy to get scared, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, you just see it on the news. Everyone's telling you stay home. It's dangerous. Don't, you don't want to kill grandma. Right. Et cetera. But um, yeah, it was a, it was such a trip. And then, yeah, it was so like I kind of f only figured it out like in August 2021 that it was like, well, you know, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth because I know you're a respectable uh, filmmaker oh. <laughs> here. But uh, that that it would the whole thing was a scam. And yeah. and um, and so it was like after the vaccine rollout and everything where they had taken away the restrictions and like everything kind of opened up and then they started to come back and they put back the mask mandate. And that's when I was like, Oh yeah, this, this is not. And, um, and then, but then after that, like at that point I like stopped wearing the mask, even though 
uh, you know, they had the mandate in place. But and then at that point, I actually most people just never said anything to me. But the only feedback I ever got was actually positive, like people being like, hell yeah, man. Like and then like, oh, nice. They took off their mask, too. Yeah. Yeah. There was but, some of that, too, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But once I moved to Montana, it was a little different. Like people here are a little bit more um, rebellious. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and we live right on the border of this other county that's like really conservative where they like don't have the same kind of mandates in place. So we can just kind of easily go there. Uh-huh. Or that's what we were doing at first anyway. When Missoula County is like super progressive, they have these like socialists that like run city council or whatever. It sucks. <laughs> but um, I mean, I have friends who lived in parts of the country where like basically nothing was happening you know (laughs) yeah yeah i mean like florida and texas i mean Mm -hmm. well yeah it was in In florida and texas they actually had laws that made it so that even local governments could not um implement mask mandates and things yeah and it was interesting because those people were when i was like freaking out and getting really like covid pilled they were like, what, what, what are you stressed about, man? It's not that bad. And I'm right. like, you just didn't experience what I experienced. Like yeah. you guys just did not experience it, you know? Yeah. Some places didn't, didn't get impacted as much, but also it's like, you know, like, did you, have you ever read up on like the agenda, like 2030 stuff? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like I was sort of aware of all that when COVID first happened. So like, that's why I think I mentioned before, like my conspiracy brain. Um, when so when COVID first happened, I sort of saw it as a, like an extension of that, or sort of like paving the way for some of those kinds of things, some of those kinds of um, plans. So like the lockdowns, and then like mm-hmm. you know, like for a while, like in Utah, they were gonna make you get some app, and then if you cross the border, you're gonna have to like the app was going to like scan they were going to know where you were they're getting deep into all the tracking and it just oh felt God. really dystopian to me like um that's so, interesting because yeah. utah it seems like a fairly like conservative you know state also is that not accurate it's like they say they're conservative and it's like this you know state full of mormons mm-hmm. but they're really like neoliberal conservatives mm, mm-hmm. they're, yeah. they're like they're very into the cia and the fbi and all the official narratives and and mm-hmm. like you know the, the mormon church like went hard for like all the covid rules you know interesting and it's also like a tech hub so they're mm-hmm. like really into all this new stuff and so to me it's just like the exact opposite place i wanted to be like um, they're very like no. Mormons. I grew up around a lot of them. I, my impression was always they're very patriotic. Yeah, they like be- they like believe it's part of their religion. Like they believe like you know that America was like set aside by God like for like mm-hmm. their their religion basically. Yeah, and they're very like they're kind of like a the only I would argue like quintessentially American religion because they're like. They were formed here. <laughs> I, I would <laughs> totally agree with that too. And like the, the story of Mormonism is super interesting, actually. Yeah. Um, I grew up Mormon, so I know all about it. Oh, oh okay. So it. yeah, you, I just, I, they built a temple in my neighborhood, but you, oh, you they did. did? The whole... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I hate the temple. They're going to build one in Missoula. And I'm so mad about it. I'm like, get it out of here. 
Um, I didn't even I didn't even get to go in. I was so sad because my parents wouldn't. They have that like period. I'm mean, you know all about this. They have that period of time where like if you weren't Mormon, you could go in, and my parents yeah, wouldn't take the open house or whatever. Yeah, and I was like, I never got to see it. Damn it! It's, but I smoked weed in the parking lot a lot. So dude, the, see, so this so this is another interesting thing. Like Mormonism, the temple is like very Masonic. Oh, yeah, so, like they have these ceremonies where they, they like Joseph Smith basically like ripped off from Mace, the Masons. Oh, and, yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some really interesting shit in there, too, which was part of my journey, like conspiracy journey or whatever, you know, like um, having done all of that, having gone through the temple and done all the rituals and stuff myself um, many times, actually. Um, and then learn and then sort of after the fact, learning about sort of the Masonic rituals where Joseph Smith got those from and then sort of the church's narrative that it pushes you know the church uses these very sophisticated like psychological like operations like the mormon church does and so like in and there you know they've got billions of dollars they're a very powerful organization but if the mormon church is doing that okay the the u.s government's doing that like times 20 at least you know and and, and to see the operations that they're putting out with COVID, i mean it was just to me it was so obvious just to, like this is obviously like a like a psychological operation a psyop you know or it's uh you know it's a propaganda campaign yeah, I mean, when you have every media outlet like saying the same like five slogans like over and over again, every like news organization, every newspaper, like every major podcast, like all the celebrities mm -hmm. all saying the same things, it's just a little weird. Like I just, I'm a little skeptical of people who who didn't at least like you know have like raise their eyebrows a little bit, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's like it, it seems so once you once you can see it, it seems so obvious and you just see it everywhere like you yeah. can't escape it. But it's like before you have that eye opening experience, it's like you just don't even know. It's like the you know, the water that you live in, you know, you're. Yeah, it's. Um, but it's so yeah, it is crazy. So that was how I wanted to ask you too. like, what was your experience actually like? Um, you know, kind of producing this film and like gathering a, a crew and stuff like that, you know, since I know the industry is kind of rampant with like woke tards. It's yeah. So I know a lot of really talented people, but I was like, oh man, none of them are going to want to work on this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I knew some people who I wasn't sure, like they didn't, they seemed sort of apolitical, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to, I met, so at first so I was able to hire a guy, uh, director of photography to shoot some of the interviews. Um, I shot a lot of the, a lot of it myself. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I wanted to hire guys to like light it and like shoot the interviews and make them look really good. Um, so I, I hired a DP to shoot the interviews and he's, you know, he was like liberal or sort of apolitical. Mm -hmm. And I think just like had fun, like working on the film. And I think maybe came around. To some, oh, of the, interesting. to some That's of the cool. ideas actually as we were shooting and then we had some other guys that filled in like when he couldn't make it um so that's how i and he was just a guy that i had met just in my in my work um and then jen knew a bunch of people um and then like in like who could reach out and, and there's like online resources too for finding people and we would just tell people right right off the bat like finding a sound person for instance like hey like this is a film about COVID and it's about the school closures and the lockdowns and it's about this, that or whatever. And I just want to let you know in advance. We had some people that didn't want to do it. 
Um, like on our first shoot, we'd hired some random sound guy and he was happened to be ideologically aligned. We had no idea. And he came up to us afterwards and was like, mm -hmm. oh, like you should probably like tell people in advance. <laughs> some people would like maybe walk off the shoot, you know. So but thankfully, that that kind of thing never really happened. Like we found him and we did a lot of stuff in San Francisco. So we kept going back to him and he knew people. And, you know, it just sort of spiraled. And we were able to find people who are basically ideologically aligned. I've got another guy shooting for us um, sometimes who out of California who is ideologically aligned, but too afraid to say anything publicly. He ran into that kind of thing a lot, actually. Like at Sundance a few years ago, I was talking to some filmmakers and like a bunch of us like it was, I think, the final year before COVID dropped. Like we were all sitting around like a beer or something and talking about how the left was devolving into fascism, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, but they're too afraid to say anything on Twitter or too, too afraid to say anything on online. Yeah. I mean, it can cost you your career, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's, that's cool. I mean, I'm glad I'm heartened by that, you know, story and that you, you did have that experience of, even even if you just had an impact on that that one guy working on it, I mean that's something, you know. Um, I think the film will have an impact on people too. I mean, we're we're inter mm -hmm. it's not it's not like a right wing film, you know. Like we're not mm -hmm. interviewing a bunch of like conspiracy people. We're not interview interviewing a bunch of like right wing people, you know. Mm -hmm. As sad as that is, like you know, like we're sort of towing the line in that way, like with with the sort of social justice angles and the and I, I wouldn't mm -hmm. even say towing the line because it's not something that I'm like opposed to. It's something I feel that matters, but mm -hmm. it's been maybe co-opted and bastardized a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like telling the stories of these underprivileged kids and these underrepresented kids and which, you know, can also include white people and um in my opinion, um, and sort of telling this broad story of what happened to people during COVID. Um, and interviewing people who come from the left and talking to people who come from the left um, and other people, too, from from the right and from the middle. But it's like a lot of really, re really smart, respected people and really relatable people. And I think a lot of folks watching the film will be really won over by it. At least that's the goal, you know, is to show people like, hey, like all these values that you purport to care about, which is multiculturalism and caring for the poor and these working class struggles all these things got thrown out the window during COVID, you know? And so now we're going to take a look back at that and, and sort of make people look at that and think about that again, you know? Yeah. I think that's so true. And like, that was even cause like before I kind of just resigned myself in my like personal friendships where I kind of was like, okay, maybe I, I'm not going to be able to just like red pill everyone or whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I attempted to, and I, I realized. Yeah, did you lose um, friends or did you, did, was that I did. I mean, yeah, you know, not too many, but it did happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, but but yeah, that was one thing I realized is that there actually are uh, like some kind of arguments even on like liberals own terms, right? Like like you mentioned with the um, vaccines mandates um, essentially operating as like de facto segregation in major cities where like a lot of black people weren't getting Dude, bodily vaccinated. autonomy, which whatever, yeah. like that argument's mm -hmm. been whatever politicized to death. But same thing, like you care. I mean, woman's right to choose, you know. It's just yeah, exactly. Picking, picking and choosing like whatever the team decides, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And you'd point that out and they couldn't, you know, it was like they broke their brain kind of. Right. It was like didn't compute. Um, they wouldn't listen to it. They would just ignore it. I mean, I didn't lose any friends over... One thing I've been grateful of is like I have a I have a very small group of friends for the most part, and I've known most of them a very long time. So my evolving political beliefs haven't really affected them. I think that some of them choose to sort of ignore them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is a fine which is fine with me because I also ignore their um, you know, political beliefs. <laughs> Right. Um, also, as my friends have gotten older, they've generally gotten either more political, more apolitical, or even a little bit more um, conservative than maybe they were in their youth. Yeah. Um, what I did lose friends over, though, was just the like ravages of the lockdowns and the sense of like huh. people who maybe weren't my closest friends, but people who I did like a lot and did spend a lot of time with, you know just through the sheer amount of separation um, we lost touch. And I, a lot of people left New York for long periods of time. People went home, you know, I was still, like I said, like I was still in like my late twenties, early thirties kind of age range in my friend group. So people went home to parents, people, you know, um, cause there was nothing to fucking do in New York. So I lost friends more through just like the kind of like tragedy of like the mass, you know, like the kind of, the kind of, and I know a too had people who left um, Chicago and got out of where he was living. So I I definitely had more of that. And I I don't think that that's not a COVID loss. I think that that also is a COVID loss because it's, you know, people were moving because they were trying to get the fuck away from either lockdowns or they were just paying all this money to live somewhere that wasn't worth living in anymore. And New York is a place that's really only fun when it's, Right. Oh, it's you not fun. Your if apartment. Not... Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like, you really have to get out in the streets to have fun in New York. It's oh, not. A, it's not a fun place just to sit in your apartment. You know. No, so. dude. It broke. It like broke society. But like, it like it like split everybody up. It like broke everything. You know. Yeah, and it definitely. I mean, like again, I I, I know Abe experienced this too. I'm sure you did to some extent too. But it, it definitely had a massive detrimental effect on my mental health and my mental well-being like you know th- things that I had you know I I had really worked a lot on my anxiety pre-COVID and then I was like an anxious wreck mm-hmm. and I'm lucky that I'm like you know relatively speaking like an upper middle class person that was able to like you know do zoom therapy or whatever like I mean I had some not that I think that that's necessarily like that doesn't that's that's not like the did it work yeah how was it how was the zoom therapy i mean it was at least something i wasn't i wasn't left i wasn't left with like no yeah outlet you know what i mean like especially if you're older too better than nothing you know Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i'm just saying like i had a lot more access to like resources than other people had and it was and, and i lived in and my partner and I were able to move from a very small apartment to a very large apartment, which we did deliberately right in the middle of COVID. So we didn't drive each other crazy. So anyway, even with all that, it still had a massive detrimental effect on my, and it it, it took me until really like this year to start really getting back to where I feel kind of like myself again, you know, like I feel like I have confidence again. I feel like I have Mm -hmm. a little bit of, 
zest for life, <laughs> you know, but it took a while. It took a while to get back to that. I, I think, I think a lot of people can relate to that. I can relate to that. You know, I think we fared fairly well too. Like we avoided a lot of the mandates, moved to Montana, you know, got a house with some property, started growing food. Like, you know, like we're, nice. we're doing like a whole, it's like, we're actually living, living our best life right now. And it's almost like COVID was sort of like the instigator of all that, you know? Um, so I have actually a lot to be grateful for, but at the same time, um, it just like fucked with all my relationships, you know? Yeah. It like, like familial relationships, close friends, you know, acquaintances, colleagues, you know, especially colleagues, you know, my, my whole industry just got blown up by COVID. I felt like overnight, like I lost my career. Like I wasn't even going to make a documentary again. Like, I just, wow. I just felt like they're like, it's this super masturbatory community. They're all just making films for themselves. They don't care about the audience. They don't care about what people want to see. What's the narrative? And, um, you know, how can I climb the, the ladder, you know, of mm-hmm. this, of this world, this insular little world. So it just felt really pointless to me to keep making documentaries, even though I love documentaries. I love the idea of documentaries and nonfiction film. And I love filmmaking. It just felt like who's going to watch them. It's because also documentary has been taken over basically by Netflix and HBO and these big outlets that used to buy films at Sundance and other festivals don't do that anymore. They make their own films now. So there's really very few avenues for independent filmmakers to even exist or succeed anymore. So it just felt pointless and stupid and I wasn't going to do it. Um, but then I met Jen and she had this big idea and it's like, there's, you know, there's funding and we can actually make a great film. And it's about something that I care about. It's actually the only thing I could even make a movie about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I stopped watching movies for like two years. I was so wow. disillusioned by like what had happened in the world. You know, I felt so black really that it was hard for me to enjoy stuff. You know, I feel the same way. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of like older movies because I, it's just so hard to stomach anything that new that comes out totally man um but yeah so how- i mean oh, go ahead. I, I was the saddest new thing that came out is i used to like you know like don't make fun of me but like when i was like on vacation i enjoyed reading like a stephen king because it like well, sure it, you flip through it fast yeah. it's you know it's easy to read like i get that it's not great literature but the saddest thing is I bought his new book before I went, I don't even remember where I was going, but anyway, we went on vacation somewhere this year. Maybe I brought it to Italy, oh, but he whatever. Ended, he ended up being like super crazy about COVID, huh? Yes. Yeah. And every <laughs> single page of the book, every single page mentioned COVID, no. mentioned mentioned maga maga idiots no oh my gosh the character the characters are always putting on hand sanitizer and i can (laughs) i can really oh my gosh it was so sad and i could i could really only hate read for a while i was like tweeting it and joking about it that's funny i only got to like 70 pages and i was like i actually can't go on like i can't you know what i mean like it's hurting my soul like see that and this was something it was supposed to be breezy fun you know totally that's (laughs) dude see this woke stuff and the the covid stuff it's all sort of wrapped up into one now i guess but it's like it's it's ruined art it's Mm -hmm. ruined culture it's like taking these people that kind of used to know how to tell a story that used to like stephen king 
I used to know how to do something. And it's like, just like reduced to like writing about like maggots and hand sanitizer, like get out of town. Like that's crazy. That's crazy town. Like that's crazy town. Like everyone's lost their minds, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, it was sad. I mean, he's never, again, he's not like the, you know, he's not like the William Faulkner of our no, time. No, still. He, he wrote entertaining shit and it's sad that it's sad what he became. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. So how are you distributing this film? It's not, is it through like a streaming thing or how are you doing it? Well, we don't have a distributor yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're figuring that out. There's a lot of options, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things. That's why we, we sort of released the sizzle reel slash trailer thing um, mm-hmm. to help raise a little bit of money and just sort of get the word out now. Wh- what's crazy about it is that no one else is doing it. Like this sort of big sort of film about COVID. You would think that it's just, like, somebody would be making this film and nobody is. Yeah. Well, we were curious. We were wondering. I mean, I'm happy to hear there's funding, but we were, we were like, is he even able to like get funding for something like this? Because it's so, you know, which obviously you have. So we've raised private funding. You know, Jen, you know, um, knows people with money. She's, you know, the brand president of Levi's, so she like knows. Yeah, it seems like she was probably pretty connected. Um, She was able to raise a lot of money, and um, that's basically paid for all of it um we've we've raised a lot actually and it's just it's just expensive to make a movie um and we're doing it relatively cheap actually so my last film so was funded by sundance so like i got money from the sundance institute and the san francisco film society um and i got some private equity and we did a kickstarter it was like a sort of hodgepodge of things what's been nice on this is that it's just i haven't had to worry about that like jen has been sort of she's producing it i'm not i'm just directing it with her um and so she sort of has handled all of that kind of stuff um i've normally produced all my own films and had to deal with all that myself and it's been nice not have to think about that um but she's really great at the messaging and the the sort of the connections and the fundraising and all that kind of stuff you know so that's sort of kept the film going so far and there's a lot of interest in the film and I've got some different connections and she's got some different connections. I don't know. We're hoping that like it could end up on Netflix. We're hoping it could end up on HBO. I'm hoping they'd be open enough to it. I think if we do our, Mm -hmm. it's like, cause the film's not gonna feel like some daily wire project, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. like, we don't like we, I think we have, I think, you know, there's places like that we could go and there's no, no disrespect to them at all. Actually. Like I'm really glad that they're making and producing films. Um, Cause we have to get in the culture war actually you know right but they i mean i i no disrespect to them either i i did appreciate some of what they've done i thought despite my opinions about matt walsh no, totally. what, is woman, what is a woman was interesting but they get they get completely they get sidelined you know what i mean yeah. like they're they're ghettoized into that whole thing and that's what i don't want to have to have yeah. happen with this like i want to kind of try to transcend that like this is a film i want mm-hmm. liberals to watch you know what I, I mean, mean? It's a very human story. It yeah. seems from the you know the the little trailer that you release. I mean, it's focusing like on people. It's not really seeming to really drive home any particular like political. <coughs> so. I think if we do our job right, we can tell this just kind of tell the story of what happened, mm-hmm. and share everyone's share the points of view. I mean, it's going to be highly edited. Don't get me wrong; it's going to have a total mm-hmm. point of view. But I think just aesthetically and the way it's put together, I think you can 
you can help the audience feel like they're making up their own minds about things a little bit and be less preachy and less didactic and less heavy handed with stuff. And, you know, a trailer is one thing. Um, but I think the film in itself is really going to tell the story and, um, hopefully like win the audience over if they're skeptical, you know, um, I don't know. I don't want it. I don't want it to be like that sort of politicized, like whatever kind of film, like it's just preaching to the choir. That's one of the, one of the things I didn't want to do with my previous films. And I had conflict on that. So I had this film street fighting men, which is about three generations of black guys in Detroit. And it's an observational film, totally different from generation COVID. It's like an artistic art house fly on the wall, like sort of, um, spiritual film about these three men, um, their their day-to-day lives. And I had a lot of pressure to politicize the film, you know, from, um, which I didn't want to do. Um, and now with this film is a little bit more political by nature. And so the questions about how to make it and how to put it together are a lot different. And, um, you kind of have to lean into the political nature of it in some regard, but you have to be smart about it. So it's sort of, it's hard to sort of put into words, but it will be a political film, but I'm hoping we can leave room for people to navigate that themselves and feel like they're an active participant in the film and not feel like they're being preached at, you know? Mm-hmm. For so. sure. So if, if, if anyone listening here does want to support your film, um, where, what can they do? Or like, do you have a website or something? Yeah, we've got a like little fundraising campaign. Um, you can find it on my Twitter. It's like, I think it's pinned to my Twitter profile, the, the oh. trailer. Um, it's an indie, was it Indiegogo or what is it that were you doing? Um, give, send, go. Yeah, it's a give, send, go nice. campaign. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was, the, was that the one that, that supported the uh, Ottawa truckers? Yeah. Give, send, go. Yeah. So yeah, we didn't want to get shut down or whatever. You know, even like on yeah. YouTube, it's like we've got the little COVID warning on the trailer or whatever. And I feel like well, we, get, we get them all the time. I feel like they're lying about our views, too. I feel like, yeah, I feel like, We've I feel like the view counts way about higher than what they well. say. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. we think, we think all that shit happens with us and our friends pods too. We, we, we used to get a COVID warning on every single pod. Yeah. On Spotify, um, and yeah. I, and I do, I do on Spotify and I do think they, uh, I do think they tank you for certain transgressions. Yeah. Yeah. So even on Spotify, you get the warnings too. They we actually to... have taken them off now. Mm. Even it's weird, yeah. Retroactively, they but yeah, for a while they were putting them on on pretty much any episode where we mentioned COVID. Any episode, yeah. We had like twelve or fifteen that had the COVID warning. On wow, it. the misinformation warning. I was <laughs> proud. I was like, oh, cool. I got a misinformation warning on my on my trailer. Mm. I mean, we leaned into it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it was funny because like that was one of the things like I I I was not really a Joe Rogan fan until he started doing the sh- episodes with like Robert Malone, yeah. and, uh, Peter McCullough. Dude, that one was huge. I feel like everybody listened to that one. Yeah, I mean that was if they dropped some bombs on that one, so that yeah. was crazy. Um, that was like but, middle of COVID. I feel like right when that happened. Like yeah, that was like December out. 21 or somewhere around there because okay. it was like after I had been red pilled, but before, you know, like the truckers and all the mandates ended and everything. Got it. 
I like listening to him. I mean, I don't think someone that rich is not co-opted in some way, but I mean, whatever. No, no. I mean, he's a little sus because like he used yeah. to be like always talking about like 9-11 was an inside job and like the moon landing was fake. Dude, now yeah, he, he actually on claims to like change his mind on that. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, dude, get out of town. You don't change your mind about that. Like, yeah. <laughs> once you've seen the claymation, whatever, <laughs> you don't go back. You know. <laughs> I mean, I hope I haven't. I hope I have integrity, but if they've threw a hundred million dollars in my face. I mean, <laughs> it's true. I might be willing to. <laughs> oh, actually, actually, guys, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> I might be able to compromise on a few things for a hundred million dollars. <laughs> Did yeah? I feel like he sort of. I feel like he sort of played dumb on Jeffrey Epstein too. Uh huh. I could see that. Yeah. Well, the real the real scandal, which I don't like that. I mean, I know why none of them talk about it because. Yeah, but whether or not he killed himself, it's like, why are is no client in jail? <laughs> not one client. I mean, that's the part that, like, is undeniable. Like, you can say that he killed himself, but, like, it's crazy that we're this far deep and not one single client has been charged. With I mean, him. not even an investigation. Not even an investigation. No, not even any curiosity about it. Yeah. And like you like, bring, like you bring it up, people's eyes glaze over. There's like there's this sort of weird they've they've it's been brilliant actually. They've made they've sort of like made conspiracy thinking sort of like low class. Mm-hmm. So like if you're a person who like wants to be high status, like you're gonna just turn your nose up at stuff like that. I went to like pretty much every day of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial and stood outside with the crowds and, you know, all the crazies were there. I felt like the craziest people were like bust in to make everyone else standing around look huh. crazy, you know? Huh. Um, spark and I, and my, my conspiracy theory is that she wasn't even fucking in that <laughs> in that building. I don't even think she was there. I don't really believe she's in jail. Yep. I think like I think the deal was like we have to do this show trial and then you're gonna get to be like you're gonna go into some Swiss thing. Yeah. Yeah. That seems highly like, likely to me too. And then I, yeah, I feel like Jeffrey Epstein is alive, but <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. That, I mean possible. that's possible too. But I my big belief is that Ghislaine Maxwell is not in any type of jail. Like, yeah. I think she's I think she's probably in some sort of swiss bunker situation you know well it's super interesting too like because like for the longest time it was just queuing on people who were like pushing the jeffrey epstein stuff and then eventually it went mainstream and they were like see like we they felt so validated and then like nothing happened and they like trust the plan and i don't know if you got how familiar yeah. you are with all that but they kept thinking that trump was going to come and save them and arrest all the bad guys basically there was some like group of like secret good guys behind the scenes that are gonna stop the Dems and the globalists and save all the children from the pedophiles. Um, and a lot of people still think that's going to happen. Well, they were <laughs> right about the term. elite. <laughs> There's no denying they were right about the elite pedophile. Right? They, they got well, that. that that's the thing. They were right about all, all that stuff. Some stuff they were right about, for sure. They, <laughs> where they were led astray was that Trump was going to drain the swamp <laughs> and end all of it or whatever. Right. My, my, if, if now, now we're gonna, in the final minutes, we'll do some schizo talk. But like, <laughs> my feeling is, is that Trump really, I think Trump really was a surprise. I think somehow something happened that wasn't really expected. And I think pretty quickly, once he was in there, they were like, we will 
we will JFK your ass right. if, you do, if you do not like fall in line, you know, pretty fucking fast. So I don't know. I, I, I don't have any like proof of any of that, but that's just my vibe on the guy that like, yeah. he, he thought he'd become president and maybe really be able to do some shit, but they were pretty quickly like, Oh no, 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 no. You're like a, you got to stay alive these four years. (laughs) It's hard not to think that it really was a surprise just by how the media reacted. Like they're Mm -hmm. like, they're so unhinged and they're still so unhinged about Trump that it just feels like, Oh, this is like the one guy that like, they didn't just like anticipate coming in there somehow, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't, and it's hard for me to even say that because I'm not even sure the electoral system is like functioning in any real way, Mm -hmm. but like, something broke down. I don't know what it was, but something broke down and he was able to like be this sort of like upset thing. And I don't know if they like someone in Hillary's camp, like didn't deliver the ballots to the, I don't don't know what happened, but there was a mistake and you know, that's what happened. So (laughs) I remember, I remember at the time, like uh, I voted for Jill Stein um, just didn't, I was like, whatever, it's a throwaway vote. I just, I'm not going to vote for Hillary. I was like, whatever, fuck mm-hmm. Hillary. So when Trump won, I thought it was hilarious. Like my wife and I were actually laughing. We thought it was super funny and all of our, but all of our liberal friends were like, so upset. People were like posting like, <laughs> Oh, I was crying this, that, and the other, like, you know, there's like those famous videos that went like viral, like Miley Cyrus and other people like, <laughs> like crying on camera and stuff. It was like this whole big thing. I thought it was hilarious. Cause it was like, Oh, cool. Like. At least it'll be different. Like, you know, like, yeah. well, at least it'll be an, be an adventure. Um, it was an invigorating, it was an invigorating time. I was still firmly on the, the lib side then. Um, but I think the country had some vitality then. I felt like it was a, a vital moment. <laughs> there was a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah. And we bought our first house. Like, you know, like, I don't know. The economy was doing good. Like, that's the thing. It's like, I would, I would rather have Trump right now for sure over whatever the fuck this oh, is. Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. And that was, that was what was crazy too, is like when Trump was Even president, just for the entertainment value. I mean. Yeah, the, the entertainment was fun. But when Trump was president during COVID, we were getting all this money and like, yeah. and like everything was going. And then like the Dems came in and I was like, what? The, the money, the money valve is off? Like, right. I was like, I, I thought this was great. Like the party's like, over. Everything sucks now. Yeah. <laughs> i'll never forget the trump checks getting two grand just deposited right into my account there were so different- many funny little trump tweets and trump memes and like trump jokes uh-huh. and i was editing this QAnon thing so i was like you know i was editing all this footage of all these like trump guys all these trump people so i got really deep into the trump world and sort of kind of fell in love with it actually um even though I didn't vote for him, I sort of got got really deep into all the eight chan, like four chan world, like just in the research and like of editing the film, and it was really interesting. It's like all these people just wanting to push buttons and like wanting to sort of just challenge the status quo just for the hell of it, you know. Mm-hmm. At least that's what some of it was, and some of it there really was like whatever, like your white supremacists and stuff. But there's just just seeing the reaction basically to like the hardcore like woke leftism, I thought was really mm-hmm. entertaining. Cause I got a front row seat to the woke stuff through the, my documentary work. So all the funding in documentary comes from George Soros and these big foundations, the Ford foundation, the Mark Arthur foundation. And I, I saw yeah. firsthand like all this money getting pummeled into basically like 
culture creation because that's what they care about. That's how they dominate the narrative. That's how they like control what people think basically is through art. And so you see all these big foundations pummeling money into documentary to make certain kinds of projects. Um, and that yeah, was really yeah. eye opening. And that's interesting. Do, so do you think a lot of other documentary uh, documentarians are aware of that or they're just so into the ideology, they just don't even really um, question it? The latter. They, I think yeah. they're sort of aware of it, but they don't care. They sort of think it's cool. Like, there's this sort of culture of like pleasing the gatekeepers, like going to the parties and rubbing elbows with like the money people, the mm -hmm. people from PBS and the people from MacArthur and the people from Ford and the people from, you know, from all these different institutes mm -hmm. that, that, you know, and their money comes from literally comes from people like George Soros, like the Open Society yeah. Foundation funds Sundance, which funded my movie. And I had to put the Open Society Foundation logo at the end of my film. Yeah. And those I mean, those organizations, they fund like NPR and like all all, all like so much media. And, and they're also like those foundations like those are those are legit like CIA pass through. Companies. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. They're just like front organizations basically for like deep state money. Yes. Uh, and for like, you know, if you want we go real schizo and talk about like, you know, um, uh, my mind drawn a blank right now. But what's the name of that? company that's like oh basically owns everything not blackrock but oh um mckenzie no <laughs> and right. i'm drawing a blank right now yeah but yeah no but it's just this just, just goes back to like having an outcome in mind mm -hmm. and then doing things like culturally sort of step by step to sort of achieve those outcomes and you to can move see the needle. Yeah. You know? To sort of move the needle and you, you can literally see it happening like in the, in the documentary space. And that was really eye opening to me. Just like, like I was making a film about black guys, for instance, I'll tell you, I was making a film street fighting men. I'm really proud of it. You guys should watch it. Yeah. Um, I'm interested. I'm it's on Amazon. It's on Apple TV. It's on Vimeo. It's on all the platforms except like Netflix. Um, but it's an op like an art house film. It's like an observational film. So there's no interviews. Like you're just observing these guys. Like it's like an it's like how you'd shoot like a like a fiction film. So it's like the action and like the dialogue sort of moves the story. Um, and it's cut together sort of like the wire. You get these three characters and it's cut together and it sort of paints this portrait of what life is like for these three black men of different generations. So we've got like a boomer and a Gen Xer and a, and a millennial basically, and they're like just trying to get their piece of the American dream. So, and I, and like I said, I was getting a lot of pressure to politicize that movie. But when I first started that film, the culture in documentary was totally different than what it is now. And in the middle of making that film, um, Ferguson happened and all of this stuff happened and the dialogue shifted and like overnight money was getting pummeled into projects that were pushing black lives matter and all of the identity politics. And there was all of this pressure to like basically make my film like that. And but I was originally granted money to make a film that wasn't like that. It was my vision from a, from from the get go to make a film that was like more character driven and really like respected the audience and like didn't push an agenda and didn't try to politicize like these black guys lives. Like, who am I? I'm some white guy. Like, I'm going to come in here with an agenda and like try to politicize your life and like use it towards some political aim. Like to me, that felt really like horrible. But for some reason, that's what they wanted me to do. And that I didn't want to do that. And that's why I originally got the money in the first place. And then halfway through making the film, it was like, oh, 
how dare you white boy make this film about these black people? It was like, all of a sudden I was getting abused. I was getting talked, spoken, talked down to. It was like this all overnight, dude. It was like this, all this stuff started changing. Um, and it, it became really apparent that like, it's not about the art. And for me, it was about the art. It was always about the art. It was never about like being an activist. That, that, that's boring. I don't want to be an activist. Fuck that. You know, I mean, but sort of with COVID, with Generation COVID, though, I sort of am embracing that a little bit more because it's something I really, really care about, you know, both. In- well, I mean, I think from from the sizzle reel, it seems like you're still sticking to that, like, I'm going to tell the story. You know what I mean? Like these people, I'm going to let these people speak. Like, it seems like you're still, you know, definitely. you're not losing that. Artistic. No, definitely. And I, that's good. I'm glad you think that. Um but it was just really interesting to go. I got really deep into the documentary world, you know, like getting a grant from Sundance is like a big deal. It's like really competitive. It's like five or six projects a year, getting that kind of money from them. And then you get invited to all these different events and you go to all these pitch sessions and you're going behind the scenes to all these parties and you're meeting all these people. It's like this whole situation. And I got to see how the whole like industry works. And it's like, it's not pretty. I mean, it's like a lot of good people who are well-meaning who are just caught up in it. And like, there are some really talented people making great films, but don't really see how they're playing into like the powers that be and sort of making films that they want them to make. You know what I mean? Uh, It's like these like pushing certain kinds of stories and certain kinds of narratives, like whether it's like transgender, this and that transgender kids. It's like, it's like who embraced transgender kids first, like the documentary industry. It's like, get out of town. Like you're not going to, you're not going to question this at all. You know, like there's no, it's like they just, all the narratives getting pumped down the pipe. They just can't wait to go make a documentary about it. And so that was really disheartening for me because my film, I stand, I st- Street Fighting Men that I made, I stand behind it now. It's like universally something that I care about. It's about, you know, like class struggle and about manhood and about re- personal responsibility. And it's about, uh, you know, what it's like to be alive, you know, like, it's like, it's deeper than all that. It's not about like these like sort of petty fly by night political causes, you know what I mean? And so that's why I didn't want to do all that. I didn't want to make a film like that. And so we're not going to do that with generation COVID either. Like this is going to be like, hopefully like the definitive movie about what happened with COVID, you know, but sort of through the oh, lens of these, characters and these kids and yeah well i yeah i i can't wait to to check it out when it comes out so uh, it's it's coming out in 2024 right like you know early or i mean we're we're editing it now so anything could happen like who knows like when it'll actually be like finished um but Mm -hmm. i mean come hell or high water we're gonna put it out next year because it's you know whatever it's an election year and we want to have an impact and we want people to awesome to watch it and talk about it and yeah not that i even believe in elections (laughs) we don't have a massive audience but we'll be we do have a little bit of one so we'll be we'll be supporting you yeah um big time and yeah we really we really thank you for taking the time with us tonight oh thanks for having me i like i love your podcast i love you guys on twitter and just happy to to come on super fun yeah we'll have you back when it uh when it comes out for sure sounds good Sounds yeah. good. All right. You All guys right. have a good night. Good night. Yep. Uh, thoughts, prayers, listeners. We love you. <laughs> All the prayers, everybody. <laughs>